Dr. Mary Matthews and Nicole Chamberlain, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. We're grateful to be here. Yeah. Um, I love uh, that you both have followed your passions and you kind of seem to have this attitude of, let's just see where this takes us um, in life. So do you feel like you are both kindred spirits in that regard? And how did you two even meet in the first place? Yes. You want to take this one? I mean, I, I mean, partly. And you can interject. Can I interject? <laughs> yes. I think, I think we feel ourselves as kindred weirdos more than spirits. Um, but yeah. You want to go ahead and talk about sure. how we met? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, we met, uh, it was 2011. So we're going on 10 years now. Wow. Um, and she just emailed me out of the blue. Uh, it's the I, only way to make friends. Yes, the only creatures <laughs> on the internet. Um, <laughs> she had a, a flute duo that she composed, Chatter, um, and she was looking for uh, people to give the premiere. And at the time, I played in a flute duo, and we had a website. Um, so she had been on our website and listened to our recordings. And, yeah, she sent us an, an awesome email that didn't just say, hey, will you play my piece, but it was, here's why I think it's a good fit for your repertoire and um, for you specifically as performers. Um, and we loved the piece. It, it explored a lot of extended techniques and it was something we were excited to take on. And so we just said, yeah, we wanna give this a, a worthwhile premiere, so we'll hang on to it until something big pops up. Um, and then two days later, we were invited to perform at the International Alliance for Women in Music Congress. Um, and and that was it. That was the perfect opportunity. So we we met in person for the first time. I guess it was NFA in 2011 in Charlotte. Yes. But then we worked together for the first time um, for that mm -hmm. premiere a, a few months later mm -hmm. um, in Flagstaff, Arizona. And and we had fun. I mean, all of our our joke is over the past ten years. Every time we get together for like a professional thing, we end up with some camping mishap or we're lost on a dirt road or end up in the hospital Nicole ends up in the emergency oh, room no. <laughs> so we have good stories and yeah no yeah, kidding yeah the very first time we met in Flagstaff <laughs> she was driving us back I was to... not driving oh you weren't driving that's right that's right so wait we no I driving. was driving because I was the one with the rental car right? I forgot about that yes. you two were stranded yeah I was driving and Why you do took I us back oh. you know to, to the house where we were being hosted yeah. and we were lost on a dirt road in the pitch black in the middle of Arizona and we didn't die, so yeah, you're so here. It turned out well. Yeah, I, it did give. I did have like this is where they dump her dead body vibes. Right, but we made for it for all out. of us. Yeah. We were all yeah. <laughs> but yep. I, I was outnumbered though. It yes. was just me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it was fun. So we had a great time, and both her music and just spending time together, and the way she rehearsed, like the way she gave feedback as we were putting together your piece. You know, there was nowhere to rehearse, so I remember we were in a closet. We were found, in the basement yeah, next we, to, like, a water basement heater. closet, and we're yeah. like, let's just run it for her. We want the composer to hear it and give feedback. Um, yeah, and she did seem like a very go-with-the-flow, great sense of humor, same type of sarcasm type of person. A delight. A delight. <laughs> <laughs> and so in that way, yeah, I think we very much are, are similar. But then as we started working together more, we also realized that we have opposite strengths, too, yeah. in our, you know, just the way that we work and operate, but complementary opposite yeah, strengths. Definitely. Is... We both like to do different things. Mm -hmm. Like I Nicole. Need... Yeah. Did you did you do that often of reaching out specifically to groups that you wanted to premiere your works uh, and working with them so closely? I mean, I, I knew it's it's usually a fruitless endeavor. I mean, it's no one 
it seems and feels very spammy if you do it the wrong way. Yeah. Um, and so you have to be very careful about it. Um, in the beginning, I did a lot more of it. Um, I had a lot of free time. I mean, like it was right after I hadn't been freelancing very long. Like mm -hmm. I had a day job as a web designer and I had finally quit to do music full time. And so I found myself with a lot of free time on my hands. And so I knew if I wanted someone else to play my junk, um, I was going to have to introduce people to it. And I mean, I had recordings of me playing it, but you know, the goal was to find people much better than you to play your stuff. Um, yeah. It's at least it was my goal. Mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, and then go from there. Like, cause that's the, I'm inherently lazy. So if someone else can do the work. <laughs> One thing that's, that was great is that the recording of Chatter that you sent us, she recorded both parts yeah. by herself. I don't know if it was great. So, well, we got to hear it available. Yeah, on free rather than a MIDI file, which yeah. is one right. of the which techniques. Yeah. Yeah. And every time I've won a competition or gotten through to a performer, it's because I had a live recording. MIDI has yeah. never worked. No. So live recordings are always more effective. Mm -hmm. Now I want to kind of fast forward from, from the day you met and now you've released together uh, and published your new method book called Beatboxing and Beyond, an essential method for the 21st century flutist. Um, so is it really essential for every flutist today to learn? And uh, what contributions did you each make to this project to make it happen? Yeah. So the, the breakdown, so Nicole composed all of the etudes, um, and then I wrote all of the step-by-step -step practice breakdowns and teaching tips and compiled a repertoire list. And um, yeah, so I did the, the words end and <laughs> she did the music. In my opinion, the hard part, but, she did. Yeah. I would, had no desire. And that's what I think took the book so long to come to fruition because I had no interest in doing that part. The writing. Yeah. And that's what it would need. And so. Right. And I don't compose. So. Right. And this <laughs> is part of why we work well together because we both hate doing the other person's job. Yeah. Right. So it helps make it make it approachable to anybody that wants to pick it up. Um, do you yeah. think you've accomplished that with the book? I think so. I hope so. Yeah. I mean, we're both flute players, which I think also helps. It's just not like I'm. I play a different instrument. I'm very familiar with the instrument. I know the pitfalls. Um, I started writing um, music for myself to learn how to do an extended techniques because I did not get, I'm from that generation where like that wasn't really a thing. It was still gimmicky to do extended yeah. effects, extended effects, extended <laughs> techniques. They were considered effects. You're right. Um, you know, and so my generation, I mean, my flute professor, Dr. Wallen was from even a, an earlier generation. Um, I was his last, he had been teaching for almost 50 years by the time I graduated. Um, I was one of his last students and he tried, I mean, you know, he introduced me to, to new music, but he was lost at sea himself. I mean, we were in it together. Uh, so I didn't get a whole bunch of instruction as far as that while I was in school and then I had to seek it out after, but the music that was available for extended techniques was for really crazy advanced players. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, my focus wasn't flute performance in college, it was composition. And so I was coming with a very different skill set. And there just wasn't a lot available for people who had, you know, the newer, they were getting introduced to this kind of stuff. It was right. way advanced stuff or nothing. Right. Um, and I think that was our evolution. Yeah. I mean, you saw it in your studio class and you had more of a background right. in extended techniques than I ever did 
when you graduated. Yeah, I definitely want to ask Mary about how, kind of the evolution you've seen in your studio and with your students um, in terms of knowledge of extended techniques. Yeah, I yeah, and I feel very lucky. I, I feel like I've watched this evolution um, in extended techniques over the time that I was in school myself, all the way up until now teaching at the university level, because when I was in high school, I did start to learn some extended techniques, but they were mostly in the context of um, like Trevor Wise tone book is where I learned whistle tones and having throat tension issues as an early undergrad is how I learned to sing and play because that was the diagnosis. Um, flutter tonguing helped with a lot of tension issues with my articulation. So I did learn extended techniques, um, you know, or I guess earlier on in my flute mm -hmm. journey, right, my flute education, um, but it still wasn't as present in the repertoire that we were being taught in a conservatory or, you know, undergraduate or graduate level. Um, and then all of a sudden, immediately upon, you know, graduating and starting my performing career, most of the music that I was asked to play had a ton of extended techniques, and I would include chatter in that. So there was the bit that I got through my education and then a whole lot that I had to kind of teach myself. And I learned a lot actually through performing Nicole's music. And then as I started performing this and, and started teaching and I taught, you know, private students before I, I was teaching at the um, collegiate level. So I've taught four year olds all the way up through yeah. college. Um, and I start to see the band music that they're bringing me or the all state music or competition music that they're bringing me that does include extended techniques younger and younger. Mm. And so not only did I find a need to teach it because they had to perform that rep, but I was also teaching it to help them with their traditional flute playing just as I was taught. And right. so what I had to do in my own studio was kind of improvise, use Tafnel and Gobert, use Moise de la Sonorite scales, because you know, they all have to learn their scales, um, and just incorporate extended techniques into them. So I would say do T and G1 this week, I want you to do the first articulation, second articulation there in the book, and then do it all fluttered, and then do it all pizzicato tonguing. So it was just about taking what we were already doing, that's a very traditional flute education, and then adding extended techniques into it. Because um, when I didn't do this, when I just handed them Charanga or handed them Honami or these great you know, staples of the undergrad flute yeah. repertoire, uh, without any of that practice ahead of time, those pieces were terrifying. You know, They were scared to take them on because they were learning how to do something brand new at the exact yeah. same time that they were learning how to play this piece that has also has you know, hard rhythm, hard technique, endurance aspects. Um, so we both felt a need as teachers, you know, not only as performers and, and composers, but as teachers, we felt a need for a resource like an etude book, like the method books that we can all hand our students and teach them their skills and then they can apply it to rep um, for extended techniques. Um, and this is, oh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no. I was just going to say, I think we missed, you, you asked a great question about, um, is it essential? You know, we have the word essential in our title. <laughs> and no, I think that's a wonderful question yeah. that, we asked ourselves, because we started writing this at the beginning of the pandemic when essential became this very common buzzword of essential yeah. workers or, you know, and so we wanted to make sure we weren't just using it because it was this buzzword that lived in our head in that time, mm -hmm. <laughs> at that point in history. Um, and when we started breaking it down and saying this method isn't about teaching people how to play extended techniques so they can play new music, but it's about how extended techniques help your traditional flute playing and make you a better musician in general. 
And we started saying that new music isn't that new anymore. We're referencing pieces in our book mm -hmm. all the way from 1950 that are using right. extended techniques. So we're coming on almost 100 years. Um, and I know, <laughs> right? Am I doing that right? Almost 100 years. Almost. <laughs> um, and we feel like it really, it really is essential to be a well-rounded flutist to be able to tackle all the rep that was composed from 1950 through today. And did you have an easy time publishing this work? You did this through your own uh, publication company, right, Nicole? Yeah, I mean, it's basically how I only operate. I mean, yeah. I don't, I, I used, to, I worked as a music engraver and worked for a publishing company and realized, and then they wanted to publish my music and realized I was doing the engraving. And because I had a history of graphic design, I was always also designing the covers Yeah, and giving them 80 to 90% of the profits. And I was like, this is so dumb. Why am I doing this? Um, so like, I mean, I just, all I needed to do was buy a printer and you know, find the correct gauge of paper I wanted to use. Um, and folding and stapling, I mean, I can do that. Um, so, so yeah, I decided that was an endeavor I wasn't afraid to take on. Um, and that way I can not only secure um, being in charge and having control over the, the whole product um, and the royalties that came with it, but also performance royalties, because it's another thing you have to split with the publisher if you are not the self-publisher. Um, and so that's a huge cut of your yeah. income. And mm -hmm. if you don't mind fiddling with it, um, it's fine. And I had also done web design. So making a website wasn't, I mean, implying skills I did from, you know, nine to six every day, which sometimes is even longer um, to what I want to do which is which is music which is a lot more gratifying so yeah so i have always operated under well not always within the past 10 years have, have operated under my own publishing company spotted rocket publishing so it's just me and my husband's music because he's also a composer that's great and this is kind of a very loaded question but uh what is a common misconception do you think about new music and composers of new music I always get the response when I meet people. Oh my God, you're so normal. So I don't know what that means. Um, a compliment. I, I take it as a compliment. I think I think mainly a lot a lot of that is because I I do perform a lot and I do understand practicalities of preparing yeah. a piece. Um, I think. Mm -hmm. I hope Mary may have contrary ideas about me yeah. but well, I think you're really approachable oh. right like is that what yeah. the confusion is <laughs> well it's it's you know sense of humor being able to go out and grab dinner have a drink yeah. and and have just that instant comfort with someone because mm -hmm. as performers it's stressful working with um, yeah. a new composer or playing a piece for a composer because we really want to do a great yeah. job right we want to do the piece justice and so it's intimidating um, but the press, you know, you, the vibe you give off immediately upon meeting you, oh. it's not intimidating because she usually cracks a joke within 30 seconds of meeting someone and then everyone's comfortable. Yeah. <laughs> if it's not an inappropriate joke. Right. right. <laughs> but I, or uncomfortable. Yeah. And I, and I think the other bad rap is I think most people think new music is like a particular set of tonality and it's not the case. I mean, we kind of live in a, you know, no rules time period for writing music. So it could be really anything. And I think people don't understand that. And especially when they hear extended techniques, like it can't possibly be set in a tonal setting. 
Um, and that's not always the case either. I mean, mm-hmm. and I think we forget that string players actually do things like pizzicato and different kinds of bowing and all these other effects, and they do it in a tonal setting. Right. Um, and it's just another technique. It's not a technique for modern times. Um, and so I think that's another misconception people seem to have about new music. And that's what, when audience members come up to me afterwards, that they've somehow got roped into a new music performance. <laughs> audience people tend to tell you what they feel. Yeah, <laughs> especially if they don't, especially if they don't know who you are. Like I like to sit in an audience and no one knows who I am because people will talk about the piece. All right, you can eavesdrop right. a little bit too. Oh, and, yeah, it's the yeah. best. It's the best part of being a composer um, most of the time. <laughs> Um, but, but like they'll say, I'm surprised. I thought this was going to be something else, you know, yeah. usually not something they deem least listenable, um, sure. whatever that is for them, you know, but yeah, I think that's, that's a misconception. Mm-hmm. And do you have any advice for fellow composers that are writing flute music? I mean, you are a performer yourself, so you have some concept of what's feasible, what's not, what will probably get under a flutist skin if you keep asking them to do it over and over again. So um, do you have any advice for them? And do you think, um, on the other hand, do you think it's important for composers to also be active in performing? Well, yes. So um, about the performing part, yeah, being an active performer, I feel like is important, uh, especially in your early stages, because no one else is going to play your music, frankly. Maybe your friends will, but but your best bet is yourself in the very beginning. Um, and my composition professor, William Davis, was a, a fantastic, is, why do I keep saying was? <laughs> is a fantastic bassoon player. And so he was a big advocate throughout my undergrad, like, please keep playing. And even though I had fulfilled my performance requirements as a composition major, encouraged me to keep playing throughout the whole degree, and I did. Um, and then as far as like what other tips or advice I would give um, is for flute players. Flute players love new music and they eat it up. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if, I mean, they just, it's just an explosive amount of participation in mm-hmm. new music. Um, and they're always really interested. Flute choir especially is hungry for new yeah. music. Um and I think that's an avenue a lot of people, it's not glamorous, I guess. People want to write for orchestras and, and stuff like that. But, oh, my God, chamber music and flute choir music is where you'll get the most welcoming, I think, experience. And that would be my my best advice. And I don't know, as far as, like, what flute players are just over or what they hate to see, I think is just inflexibility. Like, if you give them a piece... And the flute player says, this may not be possible. Well, I know a lot of composers are also used to hearing that. I've had another flute player who was not a flute player tell me something wasn't possible, and then I played it on my flute for them, and they were not aware <laughs> that I was, was so good. Wow. So sometimes there is pushback about that. Um, so there is, you should listen with an open mind and try to get to the bottom of what is challenging for this. It may be for that particular one player on that one particular instrument, or it may be an underlying problem that you need to address Mm -hmm. um, if you want this piece to be performed in the future. I think it's the inflexibility of a lot of composers, right? Does that get under your skin? I've heard you complain about that sometimes when you try to bring a problem to a composer and there's no 
empathy there. Yeah. Well, inflexibility on on either side or also just not communicating early in the Mm -hmm. process on either side. Mm -hmm. What what I love about working with really accessible, approachable composers is that I can text them. I can ask a question or send a recording and get feedback and it can be a collaboration. Um, And I feel like setting that up early on in the process of Are you sending me a piece that you already wrote and it's done and this is the final product and I'm just here to perform it? Or are we working together on a commission? Am I actively involved in the process? So you're sending me things and then I'm giving feedback. Um, And I just like to know that going into it. And I think that's how we avoid stressful situations like that where, you know. I don't give you that because I'm a flute player. But if I was like with the bassoon concerto that I wrote, Mm. like he got he got pieces the bassoonist uh he's been getting pieces since from also because there was a tight deadline for the performance and i didn't want to leave him like in the dark when i right. finished all three movements and be like here you go <laughs> right. enjoy your next yeah. two months you know um so like yeah. i was giving him stuff as soon as i felt ready to share mm-hmm. yeah 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 so open communication yeah. yeah i love when a composer i just had this a couple weeks ago sends me an email and says, this is the this is the sound world that I'm writing in. I think it's how he, he worded it. And I'm going for this effect in the flute. And what do you think? Head join only? Should we do whistle tone? Should we? And I said, oh, really cool. Let me sit down with my flute and this recording that you sent me. And then I'll try different extended yeah. techniques. And then I sent him files and told him what I did. And then it was this great collaboration on, on yeah. just, you know, one technique at the beginning of the piece. Because if you're not, if you don't play the instrument, it feels so foreign as a composer. Mm-hmm. And so, like, sure. having that, I I mean, unless you've written for it a ton. And if you're starting to dive into extended techniques, it's really hard to gauge uh, where the weight of things, um, especially because there's there may not be a lot of circumstances or examples to listen to. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so like how some people don't know that a whistle tone is pretty much useless if there's anything else going on. Mm. Right. You know, <laughs> you might as well not be playing. Um, so if it's the only thing happening, yes, you know, possibly yeah. like whistle tones are the most fragile, I think, of the extended sure. techniques, which is why I usually don't. I just don't bother. <laughs> sure. And then I'm bad at them. Oh. <laughs> now we have an etude. So we talk a lot about low flutes to volume, um, how you know they get progressively softer. Um, mm-hmm. And so that is one thing that I mention in the book as well. We, we hope that it can be somewhat of a resource for composers yeah. as well, especially composers who don't mm-hmm. play the flute because Nicole does give standardized notation mm-hmm. and we'll put little an asterisk that says, sometimes you'll see this notated in these different ways or this technique is also referred to with this term or I'll say if you try this on a low flute it's either more or less effective Um, so we're trying to also address just a lot of the common questions Mm -hmm. that were asked as performers and you as a composer of new music for flute it's it's maddening to composers how similar techniques are not the same called the same among different instruments sure oh yeah I don't really think about that as someone who plays (laughs) And yeah, it's, like it's in the music for one instrument, but yeah, I can yeah. see that being infuriating. Yeah, it's it, you have to keep it all straight. There's so many yeah. like squirrels to wrangle in the scenarios <laughs> on all these scenarios. So I mean, you know, uh, so we also help that kind of, and then you know, extended techniques aren't really standardized, and as long you know, it's basically trying your best to give the most common iteration 
that it's going to appear yep. in the piece. But, you know, for composers, another, I guess, tip. Oh, my God. Performance notes will clarify everything. Mm-hmm. So even if yeah. you're using a different notation, if it's there's that performance note in the in the score to help guide the performer to know what exactly you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. These are helpful, too. I love the story that I found online about how you wrote Death Whistle, um, kind of really taking advantage of the things that drive people nuts about the piccolo and <laughs> really going for it. Um, and the piece now even has its own merch, right? So are you kind of surprised at how it took off, Nicole? Uh, I'm always surprised anybody will take any attention to any of my garbage. Um, <laughs> but that one, <laughs> that one was a fun to write. And that one, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Robinson was the commissioner of that. And I think she has a particularly sassy uh, sense of humor right. that I enjoy immensely. Um, and she also has zero filter or boundaries. Um, and so we were joking about it. It was all a joke. The whole thing is a joke, which are are mainly, we joke about pieces I should write all the time, um, but Elizabeth's like, let's write it. So, um, (laughs) so I mean, like the, the, the name Death Whistle was, was from those jokes. Um, You know, she, Ear Knife, I think every one of the movements is something everybody's familiar with. And that's those high notes. Um, And I think some of that came from her love of the Hanson symphony. You know, I think you have to be deranged to play piccolo um, and not be upset about what people think of you, especially the second violins. Yeah. And <laughs> um, and then ballistophobia is the fear of being shot, which is the yep. whole joke, right? You know, how do you get two piccolo players in tune? You shoot one. Um, and then the last movement. So if you go online to hashtag piccolo, my God, you can find the conversation Elizabeth and I have about piccolo in general i mean the first and her idea of merch was kind of awesome because <laughs> she sent me a t-shirt early on that had hashtag piccolo oh my god i need to practice <laughs> um and so i was like okay so you know naturally i had to have a t-shirt with death right. whistle on it and just you know the graphic was a joke everything was a joke and it's just fun that everybody else has embraced it and i think mainly people buy that piece because of the joke and not necessarily the content awesome. everyone can relate and i should yeah. say i've i've taught that piece that yeah. piece is very popular amongst my undergrads who especially the ones who are hesitant to play piccolo mm-hmm. especially solo piccolo mm-hmm. will say well, I'll play that one because that's funny. Right? Which is or, great. Yeah, yeah, it's great that it's getting people to be open about performing yeah. solo pick. Yeah. 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 If you're going to be terrified of it, just lean in. Just right? go for it. And yeah. then you've hidden in there so many great teaching concepts like mixed meter yeah. and, you know, some extended techniques, but but not a, not a ton in that, no. in that piece. Mm-hmm. So it really is a gateway to teach a lot about playing the piccolo. Yeah. So I love it because they're having fun and I'm teaching them something yeah. all the same. Yeah. <laughs> there, there are some hidden excerpts. So the other yeah. funny thing um, in Piccolo, my God, there are some hidden excerpts that Elizabeth uh, made the mistake of complaining about in her <laughs> season with Topeka Symphony. So I trolled her website and was like, oh, yeah. So I would lose, like, you know, there's, I won't say which ones, but there are, if you, she was like, I thought that this, I mean, and she was like, this is supposed to be the hardest movement, but I find it strangely, like, okay, like, fine. And I'm like, cause girl, you practiced, practiced it all season. <laughs> right. You just yeah. don't realize it it's all like cobbled yeah. together. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. And then Mary, as a performer, um, is there a different kind of satisfaction you get 
on the stage when you're introducing these new works uh, and unknown pieces to an audience for the first time? Yeah, um, absolutely. Actually, most of my more recent performing um, is new music and world premieres. And I do think that's so fun because you are, you know, showing someone something brand new for the very first time that hopefully they connect with. And then you have that experience of talking about it after the concert and finding out what did they hear or what did they find that was interesting. And I'm always um, amazed what their favorite pieces are on a program because they're usually very different from mine as the performer. Um, Yeah, but I'll also say that I think that same thrill can come from just sharing a new piece that someone's never heard before, but from any time period. And so even before I got really into new music, I liked performing, you know, sonatas. My my whole dissertation was about the flute sonatas of Anna Bonn, um, who, you know, not many. Fascinating, by the way. Yeah, yeah. And and just not many people have heard of her music being a woman composer in that transitional period from the Baroque to classical period. And so I'll be doing one of those on my faculty recital in a few weeks. And I don't think most of our community has heard, you know, any of these pieces performed at least live before. Um, And so I get a lot of joy out of bringing a brand new piece just that someone has never heard before, whether it's a, you know, new music or whether it's Baroque or classical music. And so I try and craft programs with all of that in mind, like something for everybody. (laughs) Well, it sounds like that's kind of how you found um, your voice as a flutist is is connecting with people through unfamiliar works and kind of introducing them to new things from whatever era. Um, so do, uh, Nicole, I guess, do you feel like finding your voice as a composer and kind of finding your, your message that you want to send to people? Um, is that journey similar to what we kind of go through as flutists and as performers, or is it different? I don't think a lot of people hear about that side of things. Like, will I leave doing writing the way I am with extended techniques? It's something you think about and you should be always thinking about when will I evolve to something else? Mm-hmm. Um, am I tired of it or are people tired of it? I don't know when I change. Um, but for right now, I'm just leaning into it and enjoying it. I mean, I thought early on I would do like one or two pieces and then move on because it was a gimmick. It was a trend. Um, but it, it seemed to become more of like my, like you said, my voice and, that's something we talked about a lot in composition lessons. You know, Dr. Davis was like, you know, there was one piece I had written, um, I think my jun- end of my junior year, beginning of my senior year, it was a woodwind quintet that is not published. Um, and he's like, I think you're starting to find your voice. And that was like the biggest compliment he could give me was like, I think this structural thing you're doing is like what you should embrace more of. I think you've hit on it. And so... I did structurally start to do, and it was like some fragmentation of theme, which is what I do a lot. I think um, um, I mix it up with meters and things to kind of break up the theme so it's not so predictable. Um, in my mind, I don't know if that comes across. But anyway, um, so yeah, that's a journey you always do and see if it should evolve and change to keep interest in what you're, for yourself, mainly and what other people might be interested in hearing from you because you can't just write the same thing over and over again and sometimes it feels like that yeah yeah and how do you both um kind of keep the passion and excitement alive for what you're doing i mean you're both teaching young people um people that are kind of deciding what they're going to do i feel like when you're kind of uh, green like that you have lots of zest for life and it's all exciting because it's all unknown but then sometimes when you 
graduated, you've had a job, um, you're more into this new phase of your life, uh, things can get a little mundane. So um, what are you both doing to just keep the excitement? Well, I think that taking on projects like the one we just did. Yeah. Right? That was we, hard. Like the things that make us uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Nicole was joking yesterday that my role is to call her up and I'll say, I have an idea. And she usually goes, oh, no. <laughs> How much work is this going to be for me? And and so I did that with the album. I did that with the, the book. The album was and... probably more than more. Yeah. Because it had stressed. something I really hate talking about, which is money. Mm, yeah, and, you know, and that's money. financially like that was gonna financially <laughs> entangle both of us right. more than anything. Yeah, yeah. Right. But I'm, I'm the. We'll figure it out. Yeah, we'll, oh, we're God. just gonna do it. We're gonna say we're do it. We're gonna, going to do it. We'll start it, and then we'll figure it out as we go. And it usually works out. You know, we we end up figuring out a plan. Um, but that's why it's nice to do these projects with another person because it's not just all on you. We can bounce ideas mm -hmm. off of each other. Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, I, I'm excited in this career because there's just so much to explore in a career as a musician. You can like record and you can write and perform live. And um, I'm outside of Nashville. So moving there, I've, I've done a little bit of like studio session recording work, which is a lot okay. of fun. And yeah. yeah, so this far into my career, just doing this whole new facet of music that I had never done before was fun. And teaching all ages, I say I've teach I, I teach well at one point I was teaching four-year-olds all the way through I had a student who's in her 80s all at the same time and um and I always think of something that my mom said she my mom was a career counselor and so every day she would meet a new group of people and her job was to get to know them and give them different tests and find their strengths and then figure out what was the right fit for them and she said she loved her job because in 30 years of working the same job, no two days were ever exactly the same. Mm. And I, I took that to heart, I think, growing up and hearing that. So, of course, I wanted a job where no two days were exactly the same. Yeah. Well, now I'm curious. Did she do that test on you? <laughs> What's that? No, I'm curious. Test on me. <laughs> she did. Yeah. Actually, it was fun. Every time they would get a new test into the assessment center, um, if I was old enough, my brother or I would come in and we would try it out and, and play with it as she was figuring out the grading system and how it all works. Yeah. So, yes, from a young age, <laughs> I knew my strengths. I knew my my spatial perception is terrible. Mm. That's why I have a backup Agreed. camera on my car now. Yeah. Um, I knew all of those things. And we had this other joke. It was her sarcasm that my mother never told me I could do anything I wanted to do. My mother said, take your skills and your interests and your strengths and turn that into your career. Because at one point I was like, I want to be a vet. And my mom said, okay, do you like science? I said, no, I hate science. And she said, then maybe that's not a career. That's a hobby. Yeah. <laughs> your love of pets. <laughs> yeah. 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 But it sounds it's great to have an interesting a... way. Yeah. It sounds... I mean, you're very fortunate also to have someone like that in your life to to mentor you in that way. I think a lot of people can sometimes be out there on their own and not really have any guidance or know what to do and could feel like you're a little lost. Um, sure. so, yeah. yeah. And uh, how do you each, I mean, you've had that support in your life. Um, how do you each support each other in all of your projects? Daily video chats. Oh, great. I mean, since COVID. It feels yeah. like it. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot of, it's a lot of, it's we talk all the time we do yeah and sometimes it's career talk sometimes it's like all right today mm -hmm. we have to like have to get work done on the book or the album or some days it's just 
you it know, does always chatting with your friends. It always <laughs> does come back to that, though. Yeah, like we just start to talk about yeah. the stuff going on. But but um, advice is teachers, advice yeah. is performers, as people running our own businesses, you know, in like the freelancing and composing side. Or we have a lot of talks of um, about being women navigating this mm. field. Um, yeah. yeah, it's just it's it's nice. And we should also say our friend Matt Angelo, who's yeah. a flutist and did the album with us, um, is another really he's included in most included, of this yeah, really strong voice, <laughs> Whether but, he likes it or not. Right, right. <laughs> so whether it's just being the supportive voice to hear your venting at the end of a stressful day, yeah. um, which during COVID and COVID teaching and COVID performing, there's been a lot of that. Yeah. Um, and we married, we both married people that are pretty, that are awesome. pretty awesome about that too. Yeah. Like, you know, they've put up with both of our shenanigans apart and together. Right, right. Um, and Brian, we... not so much because <laughs> you, I mean, just because of geograph, my husband, Brian, geographically, it's always been, it's always worked where we've just kind of met up or I have mm. gone to you because um, that's where the thing was. Um, and so Brian is just now actually, you know, we've, we've been friends for 10 years and Brian's just this year starting to understand Mary. <laughs> so this is only your second visit since, yeah, that's since true. we've met oh and so God. Brian's like because he doesn't like to travel so he doesn't usually go with me to things yeah. But, yeah. Uh, and my husband Brandon I'll say he edited uh, yeah, he our book he was one of the editors on the book and then he also was one of the producers mm -hmm. on our album and and has a very different like personality than both of us very mm. dry very direct and that's something that we need in this, in this mix um but also, just in terms of supporting professionally, I would say mm -hmm. I do program Nicole's music mm -hmm. a lot. Oh. But yeah, she needs I, to take a break. I think where they're getting I I genuinely, I don't do it like, oh, I'm only programming my friend's music. It, it's it's always a I explore all the rep out there when given a concert opportunity, and it just usually works out that one of her pieces is is perfect for it or is that my evil plan reason. or is that your <laughs> evil plan right <laughs> of casually slipping it's in not a support and... as much as it is just manipulation like coercion yeah i don't yeah. even know Co what's happening my husband calls it codependent <laughs> <Codependence. Yes. laughs> yeah but we also do you know i perform a lot of her music or if someone is looking to commission someone i'll say well this is a composer i, I work with a lot who has been great to work with and maybe check out her stuff. Um, so yeah, I think that it's worked out that way mm -hmm. over time that, that it's, we support our projects that we didn't necessarily do together. Oh, yeah. Um, just as much as the projects sure. we have collaborated on. Well, it's kind of great. I mean, I think we're all like many musicians anyway, are, are like-minded in that we love collaboration. Um, we're kind of in this because we like working with other people and working together and working on projects as a team and as a group. So um, I think you you two are both illustrating that beautifully. And it's great to see your your strong friendship and your um, close personal relationship, too, and putting out these wonderful new projects. So congrats to you both. And uh, we wish you all the best and best of luck. And thank you again for being here today. Thank you. Our pleasure. Thanks for having yeah, us so to yammer on this. about our lives. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, thanks again to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye-bye.